only source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding This morning's scripture reading can be found in the book of Romans, verses eight book of Romans one, verses eight through seven verses eight through seventeen. If you'd like to follow in your uh, Blue Pew Bible, you may find the reading on page 939. The word of the Lord. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our Lord stands forever. Let us uh, seek the Lord's face in prayer together. Lord God, we pray that you would Use this very gospel in our lives this morning and that we would know its power week after week, day after day, that we would be sustained by the very power of God, Lord, that our lives would take on the very character of God as you transform us. Lord, we pray that you would give us faith. Give us real, real faith, Lord humbly trusting you, utterly depending upon you, relying on you only, and expecting you to bless us in Christ, expecting you to fulfill your promises, expecting you to be the righteous God who saves his people. Oh, bless us, Lord, that we may come to embrace you all the more this morning and manifest your grace in our lives. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There's probably uh, nothing more popular than change 
the desire to change in one way or another, whether it's improving in business uh, or losing weight or learning some new uh, aspect of life that would enable us to be different than we are. And we're dealing with the, the power uh, on earth, the power of God, as Paul describes it, the gospel. And it's safe to say that we have lost track of that as believers. We probably have allowed that to fade from view as a constant encouragement and expectancy in both how we live and in how we discuss the gospel and talk about the gospel with other people. That we really believe that it is the power of God for salvation. That means the power of God to transform people, to bring them to final and ultimate salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's what we will look at this morning. Now, it's interesting in this section, 8 through 17, a commentary like uh, the huge one by uh, Douglas Moo, M-O-O, he spends about six to seven pages on verses 8 through 15, and then he spends 27 pages on 16 and 17. Because the issues are so thick and rich in those verses. Some have called those two verses a summary of of Paul's whole theology. Not just the theme of Romans, but since it's the theme of Romans, and since Romans encompasses his theology as no other letter, then here is kind of the essence of Paul's whole theology in a nutshell. So we'll be doing the same thing in a bit. We'll spend a little bit of time on those first verses and then a lot more time on verses 16 and 17. Now, the first section uh, about verses 8 through 12, we could uh, entitle Paul's attitude toward the Roman Christians. And then the latter part, beginning with verse 13 and then reaching its climax in verses 16 and 17, Paul's attitude toward the gospel. So briefly, Paul's attitude toward the Roman Christians and then uh, more at length, Paul's attitude toward the gospel. The first thing we see is Paul's gratitude for their faith. Now, to thank God for somebody's faith means that you believe God is the one who gives that faith. God is the one who created that faith. Just like you were to thank him for any gift because you recognize, oh, I would not have it if you hadn't done it. Well, he thanks God for their faith. Uh, Gratitude then recognizes the source of blessing. If they believe, it's because God enabled them to believe. And so he thanks God for that. And of course, this this causes us to ask this question, do we have this kind of gratitude? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Are you really filled with thankfulness that people are being brought to Christ in this world? Are you finding out about the status of the church in various places? And do you thank God for what he is doing in the world? You wouldn't believe how your life can be greatly enriched and sustained by gratitude if it really means something to you. The gratitude of what God is doing in the world. He's constantly at work uh, gathering and building up his church. Sadly, day to day, we hardly notice. and We hardly ever say anything to him about it. But Paul was filled with thankfulness. We hear this kind of language in letter after letter. And you notice how he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. 
So the offering of all worship, even praise and thanksgiving, is offered through Christ, as Peter says in chapter 2, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't it encouraging to know that all of your worship, all of your prayers, all of your thanks and praise are made acceptable through Jesus Christ? However weak they are, however full of sin, however much they are not perfect and never are perfect, they are made perfectly acceptable through Jesus Christ. Even Paul recognized this. Even Paul said, all that I do is through Christ. So we see Paul's gratitude, but we also see Paul's desire for fellowship. It's the two things mainly expressed in his attitude toward the Roman Christians. His gratitude for their faith and his desire to fellowship with them. And you'll notice he says in his prayers this one thing, that by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Or that is, and it's almost as though, well, he kind of corrects himself at this point. That is, more completely, that we may mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. And so he longs to be used in their lives, and he longs for them to be used in his life. So he recognizes the Apostle Paul, the humility, the need that he has to fellowship with God's people. And so you and I must know that God's grace comes to us through others and God's grace goes to others through us by his mercy. Um, So as we think about the people of God, we should always be eager to gather with the people of God to expect then mutual encouragement in Christ. We should prize what God will do for us and what God will do through us. We should prize that, to be humbled and thankful and be expectant, acting in faith in how God can and will use you in the lives of others. And you and I must develop our appreciation for this spiritual encouragement and push each other, push ourselves in that direction. If you have a tendency to stay away, to stay back, you need to push yourself in the other direction. Because Paul here is saying, I just long to be with you, as he expressed this over and over with Christians all over the Mediterranean basin. Let me just suggest a practical way to do that. Come to Sunday school. Come to Sunday school. You'll hang out with people. you hear the Word of God taught. I, I, don't, I don't want to confess something to you. Um, I, you know, the weekends... Like this uh, girl was cutting my hair, as you can see, um, uh, on Friday, I think it was. And she's from Vietnam, been here 29 years. And I heard I'd ask her questions about her mom and family, et cetera. And uh, she said, are you you relaxing this weekend, hanging out, you know? And I thought, I don't relax on the weekends, you know? I'm like cranking up, getting fired up, and, and kind of this burden starts to be upon me, you know, for Sunday, and that's just the way my weekends. I'm kind of going this way with everybody else, you know, as they're relaxing, I'm, I'm cranking up. And when we've been off, uh, you know, on a Sunday, Kay and I, honestly, we remark how easy it is just to get up and go to church. It's so easy, it's so nice. Just get up, go, sit in a Sunday school class, get up and sit in worship, and, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> Without pressure, you know, to do anything to teach and preach. And then, of course, in my probably sinfulness, I think, why don't people do that? 
why wouldn't you go to Sunday school? Why wouldn't you be a part of the people of God? Why wouldn't you hear the word again? It's the word of God. Why wouldn't you hear it in that context? Why wouldn't you be around the people of God a little more when it's just a little extra time and then the time between Sunday school and church? Okay, enough said. Practical application. Desire for fellowship right where we live right here at uh, uh, Fort Worth Press. So this is Paul's attitude toward the Roman Christians, his gratitude for their faith, his desire to fellowship with them. But most of this has to do with his attitude toward the gospel. And it begins to show itself right there in verse 13. Because as he talks about wanting to come to them, I've often intended to come to you, but I've been prevented thus far, and understood generally by his other ministry that God has called him to. Notice, I've, I've been wanting to do this to reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. This probably indicates that they were mainly a Gentile church, the way he phrases this. Um, but he's, he's saying, I want to reap a harvest probably that I would be used in some way to proclaim the gospel in Romans to get Rome to gather others to Christ, but also to bear fruit in your lives. Uh, as he had mentioned earlier in verse 11, to uh, ex- use a spiritual gift to strengthen you. So probably in that joint way to have this harvest among them. But he has this little phrase, as among the rest of the Gentiles, it's my desire to be used among the Gentiles. And then he has this uh, great phrase, I'm under obligation. Literally, I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. The reason I want to do this for you, it's not just you, but it's the Gentiles. In fact, it's everybody. I'm under, I'm a debtor to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise and to foolish. A way to divide up the Greek world and say, Everybody. However you cut those up or slice them, he, it's a way to say, I'm a debtor to all Greeks and Gentiles everywhere. Of course to the Jews, but he's primarily called to the Gentiles, and that's why he emphasizes that. And this word debtor uh, that, that defines him, he said, this is who I am, a debtor. Now, I, Stott gives this great illustration. He says, you can become a debtor two ways. I could borrow $1,000 from you, and then I'm indebted to you for $1,000. Or you could give me $1,000 for someone else, and now I'm indebted to them. And this isn't my 1000 bucks, and I better not keep it, right? Because you gave me this 1000 to to give to somebody else, so I owe it to them. I'm indebted to them. And that's the sense in which Paul means this, that God has entrusted the gospel. He uses that term with, uh, Paul uses that term several times in his writings. I've been entrusted with this, but entrusted to give it to others. So I'm a debtor to everyone. But think if you were indebted in this way that, because it is, you're indebted with good news. If a doctor, say a doctor is coming to talk to his best friend about a test that was uh, administered to determine whether he had cancer or not. He would love to come to him and give him that good news, wouldn't he? And say, the test is negative. The test is negative. Good news. Or the good news that you would tell somebody, uh, you need to come to the attorney's office because you were included in this will of an uncle you hardly even knew. And that's good news, you know, that you got a million plus and you didn't even know it. Good news. And so here's Paul saying, 
I have been entrusted with good news to tell people. I'm a, I'm a debtor and I've been given something of great treasure to give away to others. And so this thing that we have, this gospel, it's so foolish to so many. It's not understood by so many. It's caricatured by so many. It's ridiculed and hated by so many. But it is good news. It is the best news. In, in one sense, it's the only good news in the world. The only final rich good news that embraces all of life and embraces death itself and embraces eternity. It's the only good news. And you and I have been entrusted with it. In a sense, different than Paul, because he was an apostle and he was speaking directly from the revelation of God. But us now having that revelation and scripturated, we are debtors as well. But what a happy debt to have been given treasure. And now we impart that treasure to others. And so for us, we must think of this being a prize that we have to give to others, of good news that we are indebted to give. And we must know it is good news ourselves. As we said last week, I've got to be a client. Yeah, I've got to be a client experiencing the richness of this good news and the power of this good news in my life, the joy of it, tasting the sweetness of it. If I'm ever going to think I have anything to offer to somebody, if I'm ever going to think in those terms, I've got a treasure for someone. Isn't it sad how far we can get from that? I mean, how far I can be from that. I, I, so many times I'm so caught up with my own struggles in various ways, hardly think I have anything to offer anybody. You ever been that way? Like, I'm just trying to get through my day. Don't talk to me about having good news for anybody, you know. But we need to always think of it in that way and make sure that we're giving it out as good news, explaining why it is good, why it is beneficial, why it is a treasure for anyone to believe these things, to have this Christ. We're debtors. And we have good news. That's his attitude toward this gospel. That's why he wants to speak to them. That's why he wants to have this harvest. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm, I'm indebted. And then he gets... Now, this is interesting. The theme of the whole letter begins with a four. Okay? Because, and usually a theme is, stands on its own, but this is dependent on something kind of odd. And at times people have thought, well, this couldn't be the theme because it begins with a four, you know, because. But it is the theme. It's built upon what he's been saying. Why is he eager? Why is he a debtor? Why does he want to do this? And isn't it interesting that the theme of this whole gospel is expressed in ways of not being ashamed? could say it in so many ways, you know. You could just state, here's the theme of the gospel. Here's the gospel. But he puts it in that particular way. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Now, the Lord Jesus brought this up first in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. There's a, another example in Luke of the same he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, and my words, 
In this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And the indication is that if I'm ultimately and finally, and it really marks me as being ashamed of him and ashamed of his words, then I must not believe them myself. I must not believe in what Paul believed in. There's a reluctance for most of us to, to speak the gospel that's not just, it's not the time, it's not wise at this time, not that kind of thing, but just reluctance period to even talk about the gospel with unbelievers. And we're so unlike Paul and unlike the early Christians, so many of them, who were eager to speak this gospel. <clears throat> and one of the reasons is likely we're, we're ashamed because we don't really believe it. Paul urged Timothy in verse in 2 Timothy chapter 1, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So the indication is there's shame because we're scared of what could happen to us. We're scared of what people will think about us. We're scared of their rejection. We're scared that they won't, they'll think we're weird. They're, they're, we're scared. We really are. We're ashamed. But this is interesting. His, his attitude then toward the gospel, it's good news. He's a debtor to proclaim it. He's not ashamed of it. But then he gives the reason he's not ashamed for it. And this, this could help us. Here, here's, this can help us. And this is why uh, I've asked the question, do you believe in the title? Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Because he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he doesn't talk in the first place about its wisdom or its rational thinking or the truth of it even, which is all there. But he says, I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God. Points to power. It's the power of God unto a particular thing that is salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. He uses this kind of language a lot. And, of course, it's against a backdrop where one might be ashamed. Coming to Rome, and your message is about a crucified Jewish carpenter rejected by his own people. And you're likely, and Paul, of course, by then, by this time, had experienced a lot of rejection and suffering and beatings and imprisonment, etc. Still, he was not ashamed. Because he believed it to be the power of God. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or later in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 1. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I love what Charles Cranfield wrote on this. This apparently weak and foolish message is really, in spite of all appearances, power. And not just one power over against others, but the supreme power, the almighty power of God himself, directed toward the salvation of men. God's almighty saving power. That's what the gospel is. Do we believe that? This is the supreme power. This is the power that is reflected in the creation of the world by His Word in Genesis 1. 
or the directing of providence in this world as it's expressed in Psalm 147. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly as in Psalm 147 they talk about how he governs all the uh, elements of the earth. His command is absolute. Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And we're familiar with Isaiah 55. My word will not return to me void. It will accomplish everything that I design for it. And in that whole context of the powerful, omnipotent word of God, Paul says, the gospel, the good news, is the almighty power of God for salvation. Do I believe it? Do we believe that? And so in the gospel, you've seen signs in the past and probably don't use them that much more because of uh, sexism. But used to you'd have signs, you know, men at work. I guess they're just people at work now. But um, but, uh, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it's like a sign can go up and say, you know, like if it went on outside here or even when you're sitting down talking to someone about the things of Christ, you put up a sign right there and say, God at work. God is working. It is the power of God. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, God is at work. And it is an active working. He is present. He, it is His word. It is not so much what we are doing. It is what God is doing as His word goes forth, as His gospel is proclaimed. <clears throat> so, He is not ashamed because He believes it's the power of God Specifically for salvation, not just in any direction, but for it's a saving power. There's a purpose and a direction for that power. In, in the word, this little preposition for salvation, it has the idea of bringing us right up to and into salvation. It brings about salvation in people's lives. It's the very means by which they are saved. It's not pointing to the power. It is the power and the very proclamation of it. It is the power. And salvation in Paul usually refers to the final salvation in the final day, at the day of resurrection. You can see this, for instance, in chapter 5, when in verse 9, he says, "...since therefore we've now been justified by His blood..." much more shall we be saved, there's salvation, by Him from the wrath of God. You see, there's the idea of being saved in that final day. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. Speaking again in that final day. So there's that ultimate final salvation from wrath. And then in Romans 8 verse 30 It's not the contrast between justification, reconciliation on the one hand and salvation, but justification on the one hand and glorification. So in the negative, I'm saved from wrath, but in the positive in that salvation, I'm glorified. So salvation has this glorious negative thing in terms of rescuing me from God's wrath, but a glorious positive in that last day, I'm brought into glory. That's why in Philippians chapter 3 it says, we are awaiting a Savior. A Savior. And you say, well, 
I've already experienced the Savior. No, a Savior is coming from heaven, and what is He going to do? He's going to transform our bodies into conformity with His body of glory. He's going to glorify us. He's going to save us finally and completely in that day. So you see, the gospel is not just the power of God in an initial salvation. It's the power of God, a gospel that saves us every step along the way till final salvation. Final entrance into glory and rescue from the wrath of God in that final day. It means resurrection for us. That's, this, this gospel encompasses all of life. I think that's why then he quotes uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 in verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. His whole life shall be carried out trusting in this God. Trusting in his work. That's how the righteous lives, utterly by faith. And notice it's a salvation to everyone who believes. It is not withheld from any single person. It's, it's, there's no fitness for it. There's no qualification for it. And he says first to the Jew and then to the Greek and, and that the Jews were the original covenant people. And of course, the Jewish Messiah first is for them, you know. And then from them to the Gentiles. But he's saying this to to include everyone, anyone who believes. There is salvation in the fullest sense for you. In that you will find forgiveness and acceptance with God. That you will find a transformation in your life. You will find growth in Christ and growing likeness to Christ. And growing in likeness means to grow in His love. And then it means that in the final day, you will be rescued and you will be with Him. The the idea of salvation is that this splendor of the final salvation, which is ours, it shines back into our life in the midst of this life. And we walk around as people in a kind of future bubble coming into the present, you know, where we've got the life, this heavenly life already present in us and with us. This glorious final salvation is already now ours in Christ. And that's why John can say in Jesus that if you believe, you have eternal life. You have it. Even if you die, you still have this eternal life. And so this salvation is to anyone who will believe. And then, interestingly, as he's talking about this salvation, as he's talking about why I'm not ashamed, he says, I'm not ashamed because it's the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. I think the little phrase from faith to faith is just an intensive way to say from beginning to end, it's received by faith. It's experienced by faith, by helpless trusting, by coming and receiving the great work of God. So I'm not ashamed because it's the power of God. It's the power of God because the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, I think uh, the, the categories that John Stott puts, and he has an alliteration, and I want to borrow that. I think it's, it's very helpful in understanding The first one we call the attribute of God's righteousness. The second, the activity of God's righteousness. And then the achievement of God's righteousness. And you're breaking into a sweat. You say, it sounds like he's doing a whole other sermon. And it's already after 11. Okay. Uh, I know how you're thinking. Please. I'm all right. 
It won't be a whole nother one. The first one I'm just going to mention because I don't think it's at the forefront here, but it's something we must uh, understand is a part of the righteousness of God because he talks about God's righteousness in Romans 3 when he says, all of God's passing over of sin in the past, it's now been revealed that he, it, in a sense, it was okay for him to do that because he was going to punish that sin in Jesus Christ so that he could be just, and that word is righteous, and the one who declares us righteous. You see, that any judge shouldn't d- declare a convict righteous. He shouldn't. But that's what God does to us. We're convicted of sin. We're wrong. We're in, under his judgment and wrath. We deserve his punishment. And he declares us not guilty. How can he do that and be just? That's addressed. And it says in the gospel, in the death of Christ, his righteousness is vindicated. Now, it's, it's a wonderful thing for you and me because you don't have to question, well, what about God's fairness? Because I really have sinned a lot against God. And God says, no, my justice is satisfied. I'm perfectly righteous. My full hatred against sin has been met in my own son. He's a propitiation. He satisfies wrath. He has satisfied my wrath. Utterly satisfied my wrath. I don't have to, you know, kind of close my eyes at, at sin. It has been punished in Christ. Now, I don't think that that's at the forefront right here in chapter 1. Because he talks about a righteousness that's addressed to our faith. But that is, at least in the background, the attribute of God's righteousness. Even that is displayed in the cross. Even the attribute of his righteousness is displayed in the cross. Because he's just and justifier. But it's also the activity of his righteousness. It's interesting in the Old Testament that salvation... And God's righteousness are just put side by side again and again, especially in the Psalms in the latter half of Isaiah. Let me just read a few passages. Psalm 98, 2. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. You think, well, I don't usually associate His righteousness with His salvation. I usually associate righteousness with His justice and punishment. His righteousness against sin. But this associates righteousness and salvation together. Or Psalm 65. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. Salvation and righteousness. Psalm 71 verse 2. In your righteousness righteousness deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Well, there are many other passages. Isaiah 46, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 51. All of them associate righteousness and salvation. So, what we've come to understand is that this righteousness is his commitment to be faithful to his covenant and therefore to bless his people. The righteousness of God in which he will act in absolute covenant faithfulness to bless his people. And nothing will stop him from doing that. And so you can appeal to God and say, Oh, Lord, in your righteousness, that is, you have promised to do as good as your people. You've promised to Abraham that you would use his seed to bless the nations. That must mean salvation extends to all the nations. We expect you to fulfill your righteousness by saving the nations. 
So we can expect him to fulfill these promises to save his people. Uh, John Ziesler puts it this way. Salvation is the form that God's righteousness takes for his people. His righteousness means he will be faithful to do us good and to save us. So that's more in the forefront, uh, more in the forefront than the uh, attribute of righteousness is this activity of righteousness. But here's the ultimate faithfulness to his covenant is, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will create absolute intimate relationship between you and me. And so much of Romans is dealing with that very thing. And I think that's why the word faith is here. That that's the thing that's most upfront in terms of the righteousness of God. That's why, again and again, it's by faith that we are declared righteous in Romans. And it's, it uses the word justified later in Romans, but it's the same root word as this righteousness. If we, if we could translate it uh, in kind of bring the Greek into the English, we'd say he righteouses us, you know, but that's not good English. He justifies us, but it's the same word for righteous. He declares us righteous, comes close to it. And this is epitomized in chapter 4 where he says he justifies the ungodly. He declares righteous the ungodly. So think of it this way. This righteous God in His great power, acting to save His people, which is exercising His righteous faithfulness to His covenant, is bringing us into relationship with Himself through Jesus Christ so that we have a right standing with God through Christ, so that we are made righteous in Christ, so that He can actually say, I will make righteous, I will declare just even the ungodly ones who come to me in faith. Because that's how we come to Him, ungodly. We come to him without any righteousness of our own. And he declares us righteous. And so in that final sense, I like how uh, Cranfield summarizes this, this phrase, for in it, that is in the gospel as it's being preached, a righteous status which is God's gift is being revealed and offered to men a righteous status which is altogether by faith. God acting in His powerful, righteous salvation is bringing men into a righteous standing with Himself. That's the gospel. That's what He is doing. And that's why it is a power. There's nothing more powerful in the world than to think, I could be in the presence of God and He could delight in me no matter what I've ever done. Talk about good news. That God is, would restore me to Himself and restore me to fellowship with Himself, who would forgive all of my sins and regard me as His own child and reign His goodness upon me forever. What good news is that? That He would powerfully act to draw me to Himself and sustain me in relationship to Himself. And that's why the gospel, he's not ashamed of it. That's why it's the power of God, because in it, the righteousness of God is unveiled. And it, its present tense is constantly being revealed. His righteousness is being revealed wherever it is preached, the righteousness of God going forth. Do you believe in that power of the gospel? How will it affect your life? 
How will it affect you personally? How will it affect how you regard other people and speak to other people? There's much more to be said as we will talk about Christ being the center of this gospel. The whole theme of this gospel is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. That is how God makes known His righteousness, what He has accomplished in Jesus Christ for this world. May God bless us that we will believe it and not be ashamed of it. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank You. We thank You, Lord, that this is being revealed constantly as the gospel is being proclaimed. And we have nothing to be ashamed of. We are debtors with a treasure, with a prize, with good news. And it is the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of a righteousness of God acting on the sa- for the sake of people to save them, stretching forth His mighty hand in fulfillment of His promise that He would bring blessing to the nations. Oh Lord, how much more must happen to see this fulfilled? Oh Lord, we pray that we would see Your righteousness manifested in the world as hundreds of millions of people from other religions, from no religion at all, at least expressed, from every nation on this earth, Lord, from Muslim, from Hindu, from China, from Russia, from South America, Africa, Europe, oh Lord, we pray that You would exhibit and we would believe that this gospel, if and when proclaimed, and if and when lived out by God's people so that they exhibit its light, that, oh Lord, this is your power to transform lives. We pray that you would bless us personally, bless us as a denomination, bless Christendom, Lord, that we will believe in the gospel and it will go forth as never before because we believe in its power and we're not ashamed of it. Bless us. Oh, bless us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?